We turn in God's Word this evening to Mark chapter 9. Mark chapter 9. We'll be reading the section verses 14 through 29 this evening. 14 through 29 of Mark chapter 9. If you're a member here at Little Farms, visitors, I'll let you in on this as well. But uh, if you're a member here at Little Farms, I, I would suggest, not because it's my sermon, but because it's the Word of God, that uh, you uh, get a hold or listen to uh, the tape or CD uh, of this morning's message, because it sets the foundation of uh, a series of messages that we'll be doing on the subject of marriage. And uh, I'm afraid that without this foundational step uh, and understanding of where we're going and what we're building upon, uh, the rest of it uh, is not going to make much sense or much use because we can have the best of brick and mortar uh, that is working within our marriages, but if the foundation is shot, uh, the marriage will soon be shot as well and crumble. So we can always repair the brick and mortar, but it's a very hard and difficult process to repair the foundation. So I just invite you to, to do so uh, before next Lord's Day so that uh, when we come back to the subject next week, we will uh, all be on task. Tonight, though, we continue our series from uh, the Gospel of Mark. The last time we were here in Mark's Gospel, we were dealing with the Transfiguration. A majestic, beautiful, amazing, and I could say truly awesome sight that the three disciples, Peter, James, and John, were able to withhold, behold they were able to witness and to see the affirmation that this give, gave to Christ prior to his going to the cross. The words of the Father being spoken that we are to listen to Christ. Where we see him in his true essence. Meanwhile, something's going on. Verse 14. And when they came to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them and scribes arguing with them. And immediately all the crowd, when they saw him, were greatly amazed and ran up to him and greeted him. And he asked them, what are you arguing about with them? And someone from the crowd answered him, teacher, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down, and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I ask your disciples to cast it out. And they were not able. And he answered them, O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. And they brought the boy to him. 
And when the spirit saw him, immediately it convulsed the boy and he fell on the ground and rolled about, foaming at the mouth. Jesus asked his father, how long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood. And it has often cast him into fire and into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, if you can, all things are possible for one who believes. Immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. And when Jesus saw that a crowd was running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, You mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out. The boy was like a corpse, so that most of them said, He is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, And he arose. And when he had entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, Why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, This kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. Thus far the reading of God's word. Let's ask for God's blessing on it. Shall we pray? Dear Lord and Heavenly Father, uh, we see from your word that when we go by our wisdom and our own understanding, there's turmoil and uh, there's confusion. But when, Father, through our Savior, there's healing and there's peace. Be with Pastor Bob as he brings that word of peace tonight, dear Father. And if there's anybody within this hearing that does not know that peace of the Savior, work in their hearts at this time, that by the power of your Spirit, Father, you are the the perfecter and author of faith and uh, that you can work miracles in lives, dear Lord. This in the precious name of our Savior alone we pray. Amen. Amen. In his last unfinished painting, the painter Raphael is painting the scene that is before us. And in the painting, he has the mountain and this beautiful, majestic brightness up on the mountain. Down below at the foot, there is nothing but that which our brother has just prayed, but chaos. What a contrast of scenes. The beginning of Mark chapter 9, we have the transfiguration taking place up on top of the mountain. Meanwhile, down below, there is chaos. So our first point is, in the meantime, in the meantime, what was going on while Jesus, Peter, James, and John are up on the mountain of transfiguration. Well, there are nine other disciples. And the nine other disciples are down there at the bottom of the foot of the mountain. During that ascent, 
during the event of the transfiguration and then during their descent, these disciples have been very busy. There has much been going on. The passage, and if we read it in Matthew and in Luke, gives us the understanding that there have been a crowd gathering. Things have been taking place. In particular, these disciples have been dealing with a particular spirit. An unclean spirit. A demon. A devil. That has, in some way, shape, or form, afflicted a young man. Matthew, in his report of this event, says that the boy is an epileptic. The description Mark gives us certainly would fit that. But it goes beyond simply a medical condition. There are a number of times within the passage that it is referred to the real problem that this young man is dealing with is an evil spirit. And there's an argument taking place. Look at verse 14. When they came to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them and scribes arguing with them. It's interesting because a few weeks ago in our Wednesday night Bible study, we were talking about the various religious groups that are around at the time of Jesus. There are Pharisees, but they're not named here. They're not present. There were Sadducees, but they're not presence. There's Essenes, they're not there. There are Zealots, that group isn't there. It's the scribes. It's these high-priced, educated men who are involved in some sort of argument. The argument, most likely, is about Jesus. That would seem to be the most natural way to understand this and to take this. That they're arguing about Jesus and his right to be called the Messiah. Or his right to be called the Anointed. Or the Christ. Because remember, just before this in Mark, this has been the discussion. And who do you say that I am? Peter says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And upon this the disciples agree. They believe they are following the Christ. But the scribes, without Jesus present now, are trying to erode that confidence. They're in argument with them. In particular, because these disciples have been unable to deal with this demon. Jesus has sent the disciples out before. There were all sorts of miracles they were able to do, including... The miracle of being able to cast out demons. They've done this before. But in this situation, at this moment, at this time, with this particular spirit, they have been unable to cast that demon out. Now one wonders, scripture doesn't go into detail, but you kind of wonder, what did they do? What, What were they trying to do? What was the attempt? Well, one thing we know that they were not doing is praying. 
we'll come back to that later. So here you have this group of scribes. Here you have the disciples. Here you have this father with his young son. And there's an argument going on. If your Christ is so great, why can't you as his disciples cast out this demon? The disciples probably defending no, he is the Christ, but being unable to articulate in any way why in this particular instance they are unable to cast this demon out. Notice the text. And when they came to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them and the scribes arguing with them. Immediately all the crowd, when they saw him, were greatly amazed and ran up to him and greeted him. It's upon this scene, this very chaotic scene, that Jesus now comes. Having left the transfiguration, having had that experience he now comes down the mountain to face what a chaotic situation inept disciples argumentative scribes and the very essence of evil before him We're going to note a number of things that happen now as Jesus came. First of all, I want you to note his knowledge. This should be a clue. Because the first thing he says is, what are you arguing about with them? This is not because he has in some way observed something going on as he came down the mountain. He is the Christ. He is all-knowing. He is all-wise. He knows what's happening here. His question is not a question out of ignorance. As any one of the questions Jesus asked. Jesus never asks a question because he doesn't know the answer. Jesus always asks a question to draw something out. It is, it is the way in which Jesus gets into the heart, mind, and soul of an individual. He asks questions. What are you arguing about? Knowing full well what the argument is all about. But he wants them to come forward. He wants them to state it. He wants them to clearly state what is the argument about? What is it really all about? Notice how they answer. Do you see it? There is none, is there? What are you arguing about? And there's silence from his disciples. They don't say a word. There is no response from them. One wonders if there might have been some sort of awkward silence. What are you arguing about? Finally, somebody in the crowd says, Teacher! 
I'll tell you what it was. It is a hint to us of the fact that there is something going on here with the disciples that isn't right. Something about this situation is speaking to us about why there is an argument in the first place. And it really has nothing to do with the demon. It has everything to do with them. So notice what happens. The man, the father, tells Jesus, well, this is what's going on. Right? And he places the whole thing before him. I, I got this son. He's got a spirit. This is the situation. And, but your disciples aren't able to do anything. Notice Jesus' answer. And he answered them. Now the question is, who is the them? Is Jesus talking to the scribes? No. Is Jesus talking to the Father? No. Is he talking to the Son? No. He's talking to the disciples. And he says to them, you are a faithless generation. Now finally we're beginning to see the theme of this whole passage begin to emerge. It's all about faith. Notice what Jesus' comment is then about the disciples. You are a faithless generation. You know the answers to questions. Who am I? But the answer to a question is not faith. Let me give you an example. If I were to say to most of you, what is your only comfort in life and death, and you say, my only comfort in life and death is that I am not my own, but I belong in life and in death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. That's an answer. It's an answer to a question. It's the correct answer to the question. But the question is, is it faith? Do you believe it? Not is that the answer. The question is, do you believe the answer that you have given? The disciples have declared, you are the Christ. Correct answer. Do you believe that? Do you believe what you confessed about me? And the fact that they are unable to cast out this demon, Jesus looks at and interprets correctly and understands it's because you don't really believe what you've said. You don't really believe I am the Christ. And we'll come back to that at the end, but just hold on to that thought. Secondly, the second thing that happens when Jesus speaks is after this, this sort of reprimand of the disciples, comes the gentle, bring him to me. But in a sense, it isn't, is it? You are a faithless generation. 
bring the boy to me. And once again, it's a reminder of what this is really all about. It's about faith, but it's also about Christ and who Christ really is. It's an interesting thing, though, isn't it, to read, bring him to me. Notice on the part of Jesus, there is no, hmm, disciples couldn't handle this one. I don't know. Maybe I ought to let this one pass by too. Maybe I better not deal with one. What what happens if I try to cast out this demon and nothing happens? You notice there's nothing of the sort in Jesus. Bring him to me. Bring it on. Come on, Satan. Come on. Let's deal with this. Jesus knows full well who he is. He is the Christ. He is the Son of the living God. He is God. And he knows that he is all-powerful and that this demon is nothing in his presence. Bring him to me. Third thing to know is what happens when the boy is brought. Verse 20. And when the Spirit saw him, that is Jesus, when the Spirit saw Jesus, immediately it convulsed the boy and he fell on the ground, rolled about, foaming at the mouth. Let me ask you a question. Does the demon know who Jesus is? Obviously. When the demon sees Jesus, the demon knows who Jesus is and is reacting to the presence of Jesus Christ. So much so that the demon sends the boy into this convulsion once again, recognizing the presence of Christ. It knows who Jesus truly is. Fourth thing. Jesus now asks another question. Now remember what questions are designed to do. The questions of Jesus are designed to bring out faith. There's a part of me that, that you, if you observe the scene, the question seems very misplaced, doesn't it? The boy is on the ground convulsing and foaming at the mouth. And Jesus is asking the father a question. How long has he been like this? You know, when I first read this again, I thought, why didn't Jesus just heal the boy and then ask the father, how long was he like that? But instead, there is a pause. Jesus doesn't immediately heal this boy. Instead, he asks the question, 
How long has he been like this? Now notice what happens when the man answers the question. Notice what is drawn out. From childhood. Most commentators believe that that phrase from childhood means from birth. Doesn't mean he got it as a child. It means he's always had it. Now I know some of you lately in our congregation. We have a lot of little babies in our congregation. Now it's one thing. It's, it's hard for as a parent, isn't it, when you're five-year-old or six-year-old gets sick. It's hard when your three-year-old gets sick, two-year-old, but when your little baby gets sick, okay, and they can't even articulate what is going on and happening, okay, they, they can't express anything to you about what is going on. Imagine that this father has been dealing with this child, this boy, since infancy, where this child has suddenly gone into these convulsions, goes rigid, foams at the mouth. Can you imagine how heartbreaking this is? See, that's the reason for the question. How deep do you care? Do you really care? about whether or not I heal your child. It's from childhood. And then he goes on to explain what has happened. The, very, the, the many times that the demon has taken a hold of him, either throwing him into some open fire or throwing him into open water, seeking to destroy him. You can almost see the father, can't you, on numerous occasions having to run and grab his child the last moment before he's in the fire. Or once the child is in, to quickly jump in and to rescue him. To go into the water and to bring him out. That constant vigil that this father had to keep. This constant watchfulness. Where is he? What is he doing? What is he up to? That sleeping, perhaps, that was never really rest. Because there was the constant wondering, did he get up? Is he having a convulsion? Should I be in the room? Did, is, is, is he wandering away? What's happening? See, all of this is coming out of this father's heart. But then it comes to this. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. He's turning to Jesus. Have compassion, please. And if you can, if you can, why is there an if? Well, what has he just been through? He's been probably to many doctors, probably been to many who have said, oh, I can take care of your son, I can cast out that demon. And now he's brought them, his son, to these disciples and they've been unable if, if, if you can. Now notice of everything that the man has said and everything it brings up, 
the one word that Jesus latches onto is the word if. Here's Jesus' reaction. If you can? Did you really say if? Did you really bring your son to me? Questioning? If I can? See, there's doubt in that word, isn't there? Jesus asked a question in order to elicit this man's response so that this man might come fully out with where he is at. Jesus knows full well before he asks the question that the man is going to use the word if. He knows this man's heart. He knows the doubt in this father's heart. If. Look at the text with me. All things are possible for one who believes. Now, first of all, let me explain what Jesus didn't say. Jesus didn't say, for the one who believes, you will get. For the one who believes, you will receive. He didn't say, for the one who believes, it shall become reality. That is not what Jesus said. That is what is fostered. That is what is taught by many in our world. When we're down in Costa Rica talking to, to Pastor Bill Green, that this, is, this is the big impetus uh, of what happens down in churches in Costa Rica as far as the Pentecostalism that takes over. It is what we refer to as the health and wealth gospel. It's the name it and claim it. It replaces the word possible with reality. If you have faith, you will be healed. If you have faith, you will get rich. If you believe that God is going to give you a million dollars tomorrow, it will happen. Oh, it didn't happen? then you didn't believe strong enough. You have cancer? If you believe strong enough, that cancer will go away. Your cancer didn't go away? Bad faith. you got to believe some more. You need some more faith. There's a pastor of a mega church down in Texas. Books and books and books based upon the misunderstanding of this verse. Jesus said, all things are possible for one who believes. Not all things are reality. 
Else our faith determines the will of God. Else God becomes a puppet in the hands of our faith. All I have to do is believe something and God must respond to my belief. God is no puppet of mine. I cannot control God any more than I can control the beating of my heart. Actually, I should put it this way. I can control God even less than I can control the beating of my heart. You can't control God. It's not like, see God, I believe, now you must do this. But that is what is being taught. But that isn't what Jesus said. What Jesus is saying is this. It becomes a possibility. But it will never be a possibility if you do not believe. Is it possible that you would be delivered from the cancer that is invading your body? Yes, it is possible, but the condition is it will not happen if you do not believe. But your believing will not make it the reality. That may not be God's will. But Jesus is saying it's never going to happen if you do not believe. I am not going to heal your son if you don't think I can. We should not be, James said, like the waves of the sea, tossed all about. When we pray, we must pray and not doubt. We must believe. We must have faith. Is God powerful enough to rid a person's body of cancer? Can God do so? Yes, Lord, I believe. It is possible for you to do that. But that doesn't mean it's going to happen. But it will not happen if I do not believe. See the difference? Faith is not the end. Faith is directing us to the end. Faith is directing us to Christ. It is not my faith that surpasses Christ. It is Christ and my faith in Christ that triumphs. Hear the man's response. One of the most beautiful responses in all of Scripture. I believe but help my unbelief. He comes to Christ recognizing the fact that he is a sinner. Recognizing the fact of his imperfect faith. But as far as he is able to believe, he believes. But he desires faith to be increased. So what happens? 
verse 25. Jesus commands, you mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him. Never enter him again. demon leaves. He heals the boy. The young man is delivered. One of the Gospels tell us that Jesus gives him back to his father. Here he is. Here he is, Dad. He's been delivered. The disciples, though, are puzzled. They ask him privately, why couldn't we do that? Why could we not drive out this demon? And Jesus answers and says, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. If that's Jesus' answer to why they couldn't do it, what does that, what, what can we infer from that? What can we deduce from it? We can deduce from it that they didn't pray. Now what is, what is it when we pray? It's to remove the if. It's to come to God in faith. The indication that we are given here is this. The disciples have been highly successful in performing a variety of miracles. And now they forgot Christ. They thought they could do it on their own. If you go back through, notice the emphasis, I brought my son to them. They were unable. Not Christ was unable. Not God was unable. They were unable. They are a faithless generation. Why? Because their faith and trust is not in Christ. Their faith and trust was in themselves. We can cast this one out. We can cast this one out. See, and this is in light of the transfiguration. Here is Christ. All his divine glory and here's the disciples trying to cast out a demon without prayer without trusting christ trusting themselves well, my friends how many of us fall into this as well do we not it's not that jesus is saying well you know some demons are cast out this way some demons are this way for this one you need a particular prayer and i'll write you up a little form and you know, you, you, you state this form and you state these prayers in order and you say them like seven, eight times and, you know, you, you say a few Ten Commandments in there, throw in the Apostles' Creed, then you pray a few more prayers and, you know, that prayer, boy, that'll move any demon. That's not what he's saying. He is simply using prayer as the basis of faith. He's simply looking at the disciples and saying, men, no demon comes out unless you have faith in me. Unless you trust in me. All things are possible 
for the one who believes. We must always remember we have to be looking to Christ. Looking to Christ. Looking to Christ. Not our faith. Not our smarts. Not our abilities to handle certain situations. Not the knowledge we have achieved in life. Not the expertise we have about something. But that we are always, always, always looking to Christ. In Luke's gospel, the end of this story ends with they beheld his majesty. It's an interesting way to end the story, isn't it? Because that's where Mark 9 begins, with the majesty of Christ. And so let me ask you, my friend, do you believe in the majesty of Christ? Do you believe him? Do you believe in him? Do you trust him? Fully, completely. For your sins to be washed away? Are you looking fully to Christ? Or is there an if? For life, are you looking fully to Christ? Or is there an if? You got something tucked in your back pocket that eh, if the Christ thing doesn't work out, this is what I'm going to do. Or are you all in? Are you all in for Christ? For Christ alone. It's your whole life for Him. All things are possible for Him who believes. Believes what? He is the Christ, the Son of God. Father, we do believe. But so often, like this Father, we have to also cry out, we believe, but help our unbelief. We so much want to hold back. We so much want to do it on our own. Help us to give it to you because we believe in you, we trust you, we place our faith, our life, our eternity in your hands. In Christ's glorious name, God's people say, amen.